Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 184 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday afternoon on the 11th day of the 11th month of 2020. Thus, it's Veterans Day here in the United States. Special shout out to all our veterans. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Uh, indeed, 11, 11 at 11 a.m., right? Isn't that the, or is it 11, 11 a.m.? It, it was, uh, I believe it was 11th hour, the 11th day of the 11th month when the indeed. Army uh, quieted the guns uh, in World the War guns I. guns of August. Can, you know, the uh, one thing I don't know, I'm sure many listeners do know this. So how much, uh, how much firing was still going on up to the last minute and how ridiculous is it uh, and how awful is it to have uh, been a casualty that morning before right. the, someone someone somewhere got to be the last casualty of world war one right ine- inevitably so i guess indeed um yeah. hey not, uh, not, yeah yeah go ahead no i was gonna say uh, um, a lot more macabre than just being mr irrelevant in the nfl draft um but <laughs> I, totally mi- I completely miss that reference mr irrelevant whoever is the last pick in the nfl draft oh is, is that, is that like the term of art for that position it is. Um, so, so Bobby, uh, it's it's the middle of the afternoon on a beautiful Wednesday afternoon, and I can't tell if everything's great or if we're in the middle of a slow motion coup. Uh, I think all overarching trends, notwithstanding the frictions, this is looking pretty good for 2021, right? We've got the vaccine announcement. Um, more vaccine announcements will be trailing, you know, hot on the heels of. Pfizer, you know, they were high-fiving big time to be the first ones out of the gate. I gather I gather, Moderna is not far behind him, and that must have been very frustrating for them. But hey, race to market, that's what I want to hear. Sounds like great news on pandemic front for 2021. Um, and as to the election and the non-concession, boy, do we have a lot to cover on this show. Um, we've got uh, we've got the vague in Trumplandia, uh, which is entering this final uh, throws of death throws phase of lashing out with non-concession, uh, spreading relentless disinformation about what's actually happened in the elections and in the uh, process of tallying the votes. But also, meanwhile, sort of letting out all the stops, doing all the things they kind of always wanted to do. I said to you earlier when I ran into you, uh, this is a little bit got the feel like it's it's like the last night of, of high school and everybody's doing all those things that they couldn't do before, but they're going to do them now. Like, hey, let's just clean out the Pentagon and install all these people uh, who really have no business in these positions. But, 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 but meanwhile, let's stomp all over the, you know, the legitimacy of the election and let's let's sow doubt in millions of Americans' minds about whether, you know, the 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 presidential ele- the, the president who's going to end up having received the most votes in all of American history, whether he was actually legitimately elected. Yay. You know, I my preferred framing on that is to, to stay away from the nationwide popular vote thing because it opens up the door for people to say, yeah, but so what? Electoral college, blah, blah, blah. Fine focus on what actually matters and all right guy who won the exact number of electoral votes is trump and the largest lead across all these states uh it's way beyond the scope of what any of these lawsuits are that that are remotely likely to actually change the the effort to get recounts going etc can't close these kinds of gaps and so i agree that it is wildly inappropriate what is going on to to refuse to concede um so we're going to talk about the vacancies we're going to talk about uh, the General Services Administration and its administrator and as a specific consequence of the president's refusal to concede what this is doing to uh, prevent a smooth transition. Um, we'll talk about sort of these meta issues with respect to the law firms, uh, law firms, lawyers involved in, in bringing some of these cases and the, the sort of... Uh, cancel Jones Day sort of thing that's happening here. And we'll, we'll talk about whether and to what extent this is comparable to uh, something arguably akin to this that took place with firms that early on were involved in Guantanamo detainee representation. Uh, all those under the heading of Trumplandia. But we've also got some uh, non-Trumplandia topics. We've got a really interesting uh, federal criminal case involving uh, domestic terrorism uh, arising out of Staten Island. Uh, and it, it's a fascinating case from a First Amendment perspective, uh, drawing attention to the the murky doctrinal line between true threat scenarios and advocacy slash incitement scenarios. 
And then, uh, not to be outdone, TikTok's back in the news, sort of, because, uh, Steve, tomorrow's the deadline for ByteDance to sell off TikTok, not under the IEPA sanctions, under the separate and, to this moment, still unenjoined CFIUS determination. So we're going to check in with that. Think that'll be enough? Um, Yes, I think that will give us enough. By the way, did you hear that weird music just now? No, I did not. Oh, good. Hopefully, hopefully, no one else did either. I was, oh. I was, I was closing a window and a video autoplayed. So my apologies if you, if Bobby, if Bobby was overlapped with some interesting music from from me. I feel like there should be a backing track for my vocals. There really ought to be. Totally. Uh, or at least, or at least, at least, you know, we can do a, a drum shot. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Cleveland. All right. Um, <laughs> thank no. you, Cleveland. Now go count your votes. <laughs> All right, vacancies. I don't even know where to begin with the chain of changes. Uh, I guess we're focusing on the Pentagon here. Uh, we, we, we fired ourselves a lot of people in the last couple of days. There's, there's been some changes. Okay, where do you want to jump in? I'll, I'll let you grab the wheel here. So, I mean, I, I think... There's there's a legal issue I want to get to, which I think is not getting enough coverage, but but I think it's ultimately not going to matter that much. I think the larger point is, so in the last 48 hours, the president has basically completely, um, Bobby, what do we say? It's just like um, rearranged the entire civilian leadership of the Pentagon, right? I mean, there are now new people in the number one, three, and four jobs at the Pentagon. And that's not um, counting chief of staff, which in this right. case is going, it's, it's always very powerful, potentially- but in this context, it's for a variety of reasons, it's going to be an extremely significant. Right. So the yeah. president now, fired. One, now, one of these four is, is in many respects not like the others, but let's. Yes. Let's, so, okay. so the president fired Secretary Esper um, without even giving him the chance to resign. Esper, by the way, Esper's letter I thought was pretty hilarious. Um, I've never seen a letter like that that didn't thank the president, but there you have it. There you um, go. The. Um, he, he he purported to install in Esper instead as the acting secretary Chris Miller, um, who is the Senate confirmed director of the National Counterterrorism Center (NCTC). Um, you know, I, I actually think of all these moves, Bobby Miller is probably the least, to me, problematic from like a well, optics perspective. For sure, in certain respects, right? So, um, I don't think anyone's claiming with any seriousness or any any merit behind it that, in some sense. Uh, Chris Miller is not a a, a, a relatively um, serious dude. In, serious, independent, and well intentioned, and, and very much a well intentioned. I think, in fact, there's a lot of reason to think we are very fortunate in the selection of him for this compared to who else it could have been. Speaking. That's right. That's right. Well, so at least compared to who else it could have been under the legal theory they appear to be pursuing. Which more on that in a moment. Um, then we also have. Um, uh, your friend and mine, I say completely sarcastically because he's a real, you know what, Anthony Tata um, installed as the, not the acting undersecretary for policy, but the senior official performing the duties of the undersecretary for policy, which is the exact job to which he had been nominated, yeah, <laughs> only and, to have the nomination and blocked, yeah. and blocked by Senate Republicans because he was too um, extreme and preposterous, even for Senate Republicans. I, I'm not going to, this is a family rated podcast, so I'm not going to repeat some of the things he said publicly on Twitter on the air, but, you know, go look up what Anthony Tata said about John Brennan and tell me if he deserves to be the, the chief policy head at the Pentagon. So um, yet another, you know, complete and overt in the face circumvention of the constitutional authority of the Senate in the confirmation of, of officers in the United States, it's outrageous. It really is. And no one is speaking up at all about it amongst our senators. And that's a that's shame. Right. That's right. Well, I mean, Inhofe, I mean, listen, I wrote an op-ed back in August about how when they installed Tata after he was blocked by the Senate and Inhofe rolled over, right? And Inhofe was like, whatever. That's fine by us. Um, and how that was basically just like the epitome of how bad this has gotten. Um, all right. Then we have um, Ezra Cohen-Watnick, right, in what, the number four job at the Pentagon, the assistant secretary for something or other? The undersecretary, undersecretary. for intelligence. Right, so that one. Ezra Cohen-Watnick, who has uh, in his relatively – short time since law school, which shouldn't necessarily be held against him. However, this is a whole series of very senior positions for I was gonna say. a person who, who's, whose field experiences was very brief and limited. He was in the White House at one point uh, in, a pos- in a really traditionally important position as the 
basically the senior director for intelligence, meaning the, the key person on the National Security Council staff who's, who's coordinating the interagency process when covered action proposals and other significant intelligence matters are coming up. Uh, he's, he's part of the circle sort of associated with Devin Nunes and all the ridiculous stuff that went on during the first year or so of the Trump administration. The Mehmo. Um, he had most recently been installed, not nominated and confirmed, but just installed on an acting basis as the, uh, uh, the, I forget now the, uh, uh, the undersecretary assistant secretary for special operations, low intensity conflict, which is, you know, way out of his league, but he was doing that. And now he's been moved into the USD dash I position. This may not be a familiar position to some, but in addition to being very high in this, in the ranks of the senior most civilian officials of the Pentagon, critically, um, all military, all DOD intelligence agencies report up, as you might expect, through the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. Under the relevant DOD directive, uh, this office, in theory, exercises not just oversight, but but a, a substantial degree of control over NSA, NRO, NGIA, uh, DIA, the whole mess. Now, the NSA part's really interesting because at the same time that this is unfolding over the past 36 hours, David Ignatius, uh, longtime sort of uh, confidant and muse of the intelligence community is writing in the in the Washington Post that there is a huge battle underway pitting on one side CIA Director Gina Haspel and NSA Director slash Cybercom Commander Paul Nakasone, uh, and with support from Attorney General Bill Barr against the president and loyalists, uh, very likely including these exact figures who want to declassify and reveal to the public something about Russia's interventions in 2016 that they think will help put the president in a better light retroactively in terms of whether the Russians were specifically trying to help him win. And it appears that all the aforementioned officials, including Bill Barr, I repeat, uh, took the view that this disclosure in some way that's not been specified would put at serious risk an extremely important intelligence source capability method, something. And it's easy to imagine how that might be. And and lo and behold, now the NSA director has now been placed under the chain that's got Ezra Cohen-Watnick rather preposterously supervising Paul Makassoni. Uh, well, we, we, and, haven't, we, ha- we haven't got to the best part of this yet, though. You're, you're, well, leaving, you're leaving out my personal hero. I don't know if this is going to be who it is, but at the same moment, they're in, they've installed at NSA as general counsel, Michael Ellis, who's another figure from the same circle. <laughs> so uh, they've kind of got a sandwich going on NSA. Now, now maybe this maybe it doesn't connect to the Ignatius story. Maybe it's just coincidence of these mm. things happening, but it, it looks a little fishy. And and Cash Patel is now the chief of staff at the Pentagon. Right. So Chris Miller's office is in his position now. The chief of staff, in, no doubt, imposed on him. Cash Patel, who in many respects will be in a position to drive personnel policy, you name it, except in so far as Miller is able to divert his attention to it and focus on it and decide to intervene personally. Otherwise, uh, Patel's in a tremendous position to have an impact now. Is anything really going to come of this over the next, you know, two month period before it's all before they're all out? Um, don't know, but so, it's not good. Yeah, I, I mean, so 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 here's the thing, right? I mean, I think the a lot of folks are very sensitive right now, and I understand that. And so folks look at like the sacking of of Esper, and you know, some of the folks who some of the yutzes who who have been put in instead and are like, look, this is part of the coup. Um, no, because from a practical perspective, if you really were going to use the Pentagon um, as part of an actual coup, you wouldn't just sack the civilian leadership. You would also sack the military right. leadership. Like right. the, the, the fact that Millie is still there, the fact that none of the combatant commanders have been relieved of duty, you know, that suggests to me that this is as, as Bobby, you suggest, not about consolidating control over the military for some future, you know, disturbance, but rather sort of cleaning house on this intelligence issue, right? And sort of making sure that like the people you want are in the right civilian jobs on the intelligence side, both at DOD and NSA. So I think I think for sure this seems like part of it. I will say two other things, one of which is maybe a little more a little more conspiratorial, which I'm not I like to think I'm not usually drawn towards. That's my uh, that's my brief. 
Yeah, exactly. So you might like this. So the first one, the more not innocuous one, but not having to do with uh, final stage Hail Mary attempts to, to recapture or to hold power, but rather uh, causing more of the, it's the last night of high school night. Let's do all the things that, that those, uh, those other people kept us from doing the whole time. One thing that could be really, really serious um, I, with this particular collection of characters, the possibility of more Soleimani type one-offs involving the Iranians in particular, it's easy to imagine that you might have, uh, that the White House might have in mind that they need a more congenial cast of characters in the civilian leadership uh, to help pursue something like that, that, that the military is not going to say, no, we will not do it. Um, but that, but that the civilian leadership might have slow rolled or, or otherwise thrown up too many red flags to smoothly get it through. Otherwise, so you might see something like that. Although that's really speculative. Um, the one thing I will say that we know Esper especially did that's so greatly to his credit, and we have reason to think that this was specifically something that led to Trump particularly wanting him out, among other reasons. Um, Esper's views about allowing the military during the Washington, the most intense stage of protest in Washington, D.C., when the president wanted military deployment into Washington, D.C., and in various ways, uh, Esper stood in the way of that. And I have no reason to think Chris Miller wouldn't be like Esper in thinking sensibly and in, in, in respect of our constitutional traditions. Um, I'm very worried about his chief of staff and how he might respond to this, if you get a circumstance in which there is a context in which the president might be trying to bring military forces to bear in a, in a high-intensity uh, American urban setting like we have with the protests. That said, um, you've got to add in a lot of extreme further developments before there's something going on where people are taking to the streets in this kind of protest way. I know a lot of people are worried we might be heading there I don't. I really don't think we are. I think the courts, uh, in sort of whack-a-mole fashion, are going to grind out and get rid of all these lawsuits, and then the electoral college is going to do its thing. And by December fourteenth, they'll have done their thing, and this this deal will be over. I think the construction so, will come by then, and I think all these other chips will finally rever- all the things will start reverting back to the way it's supposed to work during the transition. All right. I mean, I, so I agree that that's where this ends. I I, I, I want to sort of not be quite so cavalier about the very alarming and concerning noises that are being made by too many people who know better. Um, right. I mean, there's a new poll out today from The Economist that 80 percent of the president supporters believe that the election was marred by fraud. 80 percent. Um, right. I mean, that's stunning. And, you know, I don't listen. I, there's no. <laughs> there's nothing below uh, there there's no there, there there's no trump couldn't stoop low enough to surprise me right it's not what trump is doing it's what everybody else is doing it's the fact that mitch mcconnell says you know the election isn't over right that roy blount says um you know it's not clear to me that biden won right that you know john cornyn who you know for all of our differences i have not usually understood to be a a, a crazy person Right. Cornyn says, you know, it's appropriate to let the legal process run its course. Forgive me, but no, it is not because the legal process is not being used as a realistic mechanism for changing the result that this is not 2000 when the whole election came down to one state and the margin between the candidates was 537 votes. As of right now, the smallest margin in one of the states that matters is Arizona, where it's 12,000 votes, and Biden could lose Arizona and still be fine. Georgia is 14,000, Wisconsin's 20,000, Pennsylvania's pushing 50,000. So no, we do not need to let litigation run its course because all that this narrative is doing is perpetuating in the minds of way too many Americans that these claims are somehow legitimate, that the election actually is marred by fraud. When Bobby, every single person who actually knows what they're talking about has said there's no evidence, right? The New York Times cover story, uh, front page story this morning, they talked to all 50 secretaries of state, Democrats and Republicans alike. None of them reported any evidence of more than the usual marginal, like this person didn't sign their ballot and that person may have voted twice. Like, this is not happening, and yet there are too many people indulging the narrative that it's happening. I agree that it's it's revolting to see the what I will describe as the coddling of this conspiracy theory of massive fraud. 
it's, it's just th- there's the evidence is not there and it's way past time to stop peddling it. That doesn't mean that uh, the suits, in fact, a little silver lining in an otherwise ugly situation, all these suits, I, I firmly believe they are all going to be thrown out bit by bit because there is no evidence. If there was evidence, we'd be hearing about it. Right. Uh, and, and where there is evidence, it's really small scale stuff that's inevitable to some extent in any hundreds of, you know, any situation in which so many millions of people are voting. Um, and one hopes that the involvement of so many different judges all throwing out all these lawsuits and having this formal process of showing that there is no there there. It, obviously, there's some people who are never going to be persuaded because they, they're, but, living, but, they're captured in or in a captured information environment. But this, one hopes, will help at least some people see some uh, – some sanity, see some reality. But but the problem is, I mean, like, like I mean, now all of a sudden, this morning on on right wing, you know, social media, all the conversations are about how you can, you know, force this, you know, um, get Pennsylvania to appoint, get the Pennsylvania legislature to appoint a separate slate of electors, right? Force the election to go into the House, right? Deprive Biden of his electoral majority. Um, this is a coup. Uh, I'm sorry. This is this is not funny. Is there any reason to think that the Pennsylvania Republicans themselves have changed their leadership? Has changed their yeah. Mind? So the 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 guy the guy the the Senate Majority Leader um he he said he has softened on his on his position. He says, well, you know. We certainly do need to look into these allegations of, of widespread fraud before we, you know, before we abandon all possible options. I just like there are all these media stories, Bobby, where Republican senators are quoted anonymously as saying, we understand it's over. We understand Biden won and Trump lost. We're humoring the president because we don't see any downside. Yeah, that's, that's like that's not OK, because the downside is systematic, strategic. It is it is it is awful and it shouldn't be done. Yeah. All right. So then I want to ask a question that is probably going to get me into trouble. But there's been a lot of discussion in you know the legal universe the last couple of days about the role of lawyers in this process because you know the president and his campaign keep bringing lawsuits that Bobby I, they're not all borderline frivolous, but almost all of them, even if they succeed, which they won't because they don't have any evidence, wouldn't actually change the bottom lines in these states, right? So they're they're sort of prudentially moot. Um, Right. I mean, there and these claims, I mean, there's um, there's a case that was filed in Detroit last night or this morning um, where there are all these allegations about all of this misconduct. The city of Detroit, Bobby, has responded, saying that most of these objections are grounded in an extraordinary failure to understand how elections function. Right. Like these are not actually these lawsuits are. are so we have. Rule 11. Right. To sanction lawyers who bring frivolous lawsuits. Right. Um, we also have the Lincoln Project, right, taking out this ad against Jones Day, which has been involved in at least some of these lawsuits. And I guess I, I'm curious, like, I have very mixed feelings about attacking lawyers publicly. Like, it seems to me that if you commit sanctionable misconduct, you should be sanctioned. Um, I, I, you know, I guess I, I get a little... You know, I'm I'm one of those who thought it was disgraceful, right? Ten, twelve years ago, when um, some Bush administration appointees were criticizing big Washington law firms for allowing some of their lawyers to represent Guantanamo detainees pro bono. Um, this is different to me, but I don't know if it's different enough, right? Like it's different in that these lawsuits are attacking the democratic results of elections, um, which to me is 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 more problematic. And I, but I just I don't I can't quite put my finger on what the right where is it? Where what is appropriate criticism of the lawyers and what is not? So I want to encourage you in what I take to be your instinct that these scenarios aren't as distinguishable as they would really need to be in order to bless what I think is a somewhat outrageous effort by the Lincoln Project to try to cancel Jones Day and to bring pressure, even secondary pressure, to bear on Jones Day separate clients in order to punish them for their involvement in this. Um, and and uh, and so to me. The, the way to look at it is, uh, in both cases, what is what is at stake is the general principle of encouraging, in general, at, in general, and I mean like systematically, the strongest possible representation because adversariality is central to how our legal system works and the independence of it, et cetera. And necessarily, that's going to mean extending that not just to either 
people we like, causes we like, organizations we like, or those that are more neutral about, but also to even those we despise and disagree with, where we think that the position they're advancing is, is terribly wrong. Nonetheless, if we really believe in the adversarial process, we should want the best possible representation within reasonable bounds, or at least good representation. And part of that is avoiding ostracization efforts and social, like external to the system punishment meted out in sort of cancel culture fashion against those who take on unpopular causes. Um, there are vast numbers of Americans who would look at the, rep or at least at the time, looked at the representation of Gitmo detainees as early on when they were widely being described and perceived by this audience as the worst of the worst, et cetera. Um, and, you know, people engaged in war against the United States. How could these big firms do it? And I thought it was very admirable that so many people on both sides of the aisle spoke up saying, no, 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 you, you got to lay off the lawyers. It's part of our system. You can represent a la John Adams and the, the Boston Massacre. You represent even those you most disagree with. And that the, the people associated with initially leveling those criticisms, at least one of them, somebody we know well, and I think we both like and respect a lot, really walked it back and, and very clearly concluded that, no, he'd, he'd had it wrong and he, he was sorry that he spoke out that way. Uh, I think that we have to be able to look at this in the abstract and say, all right, so when you have that kind of dynamic, no matter how bad you think the other point of view is, you should not go after the lawyers themselves. Now, that doesn't mean you don't let them have it with both barrels on the merits of how ridiculous this is. But the Lincoln Project effort, I take it to be an effort not to not just to meet them on the merits, but to delegitimize their act of representing their clients and indeed to go after and punish third party other clients of the firm itself. I think that way lies madness because no matter what lines you and I might be able to draw to explain why this one scenario is different, that one, that controlling principle won't stay with it. It'll just be a precedent for how you go after lawyers who take on the wrong causes. So, so I, I think two different things can be true. I think the Lincoln Project could be way overboard, and I think it could still be the case that it is wildly inappropriate for lawyers to be attacking election results without probable cause. Um, and, and that, and that the lawyers were, and that even if the affiants in these cases don't know election law well enough to know that what they saw is not actually a violation of any election law, the lawyers do. Well, that's why so, rule 11, which you mentioned, I feel like this is, this is exactly what rule 11 is for. Yeah, but, but, but you know, I mean, out for that. but you know, I mean, Bobby, you know how hard it is to actually sanction even lawyers who commit sanctionable conduct. And I guess, I guess I'm just trying to say that like, it seems to me that this is not the Guantanamo example, um, right? That there that that it, it's not really symmetrical where all lawyers representing unpopular clients are equal, right? That there's actually a meaningful difference between lawyers who are ensuring that those whom the system would otherwise not adequately represent are represented, you know, public defenders, right? Um, lawyers with unpopular criminal clients, and those who are actively working to subvert the foundation of our democratic system by bringing lawsuits that they know, right, are not actually, you know, supported by by, by meritorious claims about about election fraud. I, I think it's hard to sustain that when we think about the scenario in which we expect and count on in our system that even with a guilty client, a criminal defense lawyer is going to engage in zealous representation. You have situations where the lawyer knows their client is trying to get out of something they probably shouldn't be getting out of. And we, we embrace that principle for better or worse. But, but the most important thing, I think, is that even if I were persuaded, which I'm not, but if I were persuaded it was different enough, I don't think that distinction, which requires some thinking and grappling and articulation, I don't think it stays with the precedent that would be created here. I think the precedent just lies about like, yeah, well, I remember when that side came after our lawyers. And I don't know. Listen, this is this is why I'm queasy, right? I mean, I'm, I'm queasy about all of this. I, I don't I don't I like mean, any I of this. But I encourage you to feel even more. I want you, I want you to feel downright sick about it and not like this. I think we should concentrate our fire on if if some of these representations are frivolous, they should be sanctioned. So I mean, maybe the answer is you know let's make make Rule Eleven great again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> podcast go. title: Make Rule Eleven Great Again. Oh, I like um, that. hold on, I'm writing that down. 
So, so, I mean, let's, you know, for the folks who don't, who haven't memorized the Electoral Count Act of 1887, I mean, let's talk about what's going to happen from here and why and where the real implications might actually be in messing with the transition. Um, so the states all have their own deadlines for certifying their results. Um, they vary from, you know, some states already, I think, have to the big picture states, which really don't till next week or the following week. The, the so-called safe harbor deadline is December 8th. Um, under federal law, a state that certifies its results, um, that certification is deemed as conclusive for purposes of federal law with regard to, you know, the slate of electors. Um, so, you know, assuming that the relevant states certify their electors by December 8th and that we don't see efforts by state legislatures to certify competing slates of electors, yeah, this will be over. And it'll be over, you know, in less than a month. But a lot can happen in a month. Um, and, you know, wholly apart from how much worse the rhetoric gets on the election fraud slash election theft angle, which I just, I mean, you know, it's going to be hard to forgive some of these people. Um, but leaving that aside, there's also the transition problems it's causing. And so the, the big one that's gotten a lot of attention, um, is that the, the presidential transition act of 1963 as amended, um, gives a whole lot of, opens up access to a whole lot of money and a whole lot of other logistical resources once a candidate has been certified or deemed or ascertained in the word of the statute, the, the president, elect, uh, the, the apparent victor of the general election, as ascertained by the administrator of the General Services Administration. Um, and that person, Emily Murphy, has not yet ascertained that Joe Biden is the apparent winner of the election, never mind that he is the apparent winner of the election. Um, and, and, and I have to say, I don't think she has much of a leg to stand on because the statute does not require her to wait for certification of results. It refers to the election under three USC sections one and two, not certification under three USC five, not the meeting of the electoral college under three USC seven. So, you know, I'm not sure what the argument is that Biden isn't the apparent winner of the election at this point. But so what I told uh, we talked about this in class this morning oh. because the student wanted to know, like, could you see. Could we have a, a mandamus uh, direction? Yeah. Um, and my, my position was not currently, but later, yes. Yeah. So let's imagine it unfolds as, as you just described. Let's say we get all the way through to the congressional acceptance and certification of the Electoral College results. So was it January 8th, right? Uh, January 6th. January 6th. So let's say it's January 7th and it's like it's all done. And the president is still saying no, 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 and and incredibly the the GSA administrator she's like, well, the president still says no, so I still say no. I think at that point it's a no, it's no longer discretionary. I can imagine mandamus at that point, um, and I think by extension a version of that argument has some bite going back to the moment in time, at least on December fourteenth when the electors vote. Um, until we reach that moment, then the problem is the the uns, the fact that the statute does direct the administrator to make her ascertainment, and as preposterous as it seems for her to continue to hold out, um, I'm not I'm not confident that a court would consider this having reached a non discretionary stage. Do you think that's right, or indeed is it never possible to issue a mandamus? Is it just sort of this thing that is in the gift of the GSA administrator the whole time? I don't think so. I mean, I mean, the APA does have a remedy for administrative action wrongly withheld, right? And so even if it's not mandamus, like I could imagine an APA claim, I just think that that APA claim probably isn't ripe yet, right? That like, I think for all practical purposes, it's apparent, but the statute does commit the matter to her discretion. Um, and Bobby, I would argue that her discretion lasts, even though the statute refers to 3 USC 1 and 2 and not 5 or 7, I think you could argue that her discretion lasts at least until the, the results are certified. Yeah, um, so that's kind of what I was thinking too. And and so what we've got is a situation where it's it's bad for the nation, for all Americans on both sides of the aisle yeah. to withhold the means of a transition that almost you know, that is going to come. And by the way, some elements of this like, okay, so even if you believe that something might yet come unwound – Okay, so fine. In the meantime, it, at, at a minimum, we should be having a variety of preliminary steps taken because it looks like it's going to go the other way. Um, this is especially true, that principle, by the way, and I realize this isn't the GSA's bit, but the refusal to provide uh, intelligence briefings mm -hmm. uh, to the transition, it, that's just inexcusable. That's not about some money that's 
gone and lost if you mistakenly nope. provide it. That's just petty. That's just it's just uh, harmful. It's 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 indefensible. Well, and, and let's remind people that the 9/11 Commission report specifically singled out how the litigation over Florida in 2000 slowed down the intelligence side of the Bush transition. Right. As one of the many reasons why come the summer of 2001, the Bush administration was not ready to fully deal with the, you know, the threats posed by Al Qaeda. I mean, this is, you know, so there comes a point where this where where the, the, the obvious pettiness by the pettiest person I've ever seen in professional politics um, could very well end up having serious national security implications. And, you know, no one no one in the so-called party of national security seems to give two shits. Um, and that's, you know, that's yet further, I think, proof to those of us who fear this, that nothing matters to the current establishment of the Republican Party besides holding on to power by any means necessary, um, you know, which is not exactly a good look. I mean, Bobby, imagine if the election were closer. Imagine if it really were all down to Pennsylvania, but it was still this margin, right? Imagine how much more energy and oxygen there'd be right now on the whole state legislative coup option. Well, if it were, yes, I know, I know. I'm, I'm worn out. Like how, like, like, how do we fix this? I guess what I'm trying to say. Like, like I agree with you that I well, think we're going to get through this. We fixed it in the election. But we're having trouble closing the deal here. But I think. No, no, but, 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 what, but what happens in 2024 if the election's closer and we're back? Like, and we haven't changed any of these laws. I mean, I just, I, you know, there's, there's, there are a million legislative tasks. One thing that I do hope and trust has been happening because I know there are all sorts of uh, projects that have been unfolding in the past year or two, and, and things like uh, Jack Goldsmith and Bob Bauer's fantastic book. All these efforts to say, like, okay, in light of what we've just seen. Here is a ready-made set of, of things that need to be done. Here's hoping that the Biden administration and whichever alignment of Congress it ends up with, here's hoping they're actually able to take this window to lock in some good government reforms, some ethics reforms. I mean, this is a very mid-1970s moment we're about to have, but we won't know until we get across the finish line into next year whether there's going to be willing partnership in Congress. I, I'm increasingly worried about this. I'm increasingly worried that even entirely out of office, that Trump will continue to control the minds and beliefs of so many millions of people that it makes it effectively impossible for the GOP's elected officials to behave themselves and to comport themselves as they should. I'm really worried about this. I, I think I thought kind of foolishly that, well, if Trump's out, then that kind of goes away. But of course, it doesn't go away. And I think that's the, the real lesson is that Trump may have lost, but Trumpism did not. And that's that's pretty that's alarming. Right, Trumpism, we all like to say, like in the last election, Trumpism was on the ballot. It was, but not in a way that sends it off to Azkaban when it's all said and done. Right. Um, all right. Uh, I forgot one thing on the DOD side, which is there, is, there actually is a legal question here. Um, just before oh, yeah, we move we along, skipped to, over that, didn't we? Yeah. So you know, back to vacancies land. Um, and you know, if we actually look at the relevant U.S. Code provisions, so 10 U.S.C. Section 132 says the Deputy Secretary of Defense, and we have one of those right now, right? David Norquist um, shall perform uh, blah blah blah. The shall act for and exercise the powers of the Secretary when the secretary dies, resigns, or is otherwise unable to perform the functions and duties of the office, period, full stop, end of sentence. Um, to take by, by the principle that the more specific should control, that would take precedence over the Vacancies Act, the General Vacancies Act. I had wondered on Twitter, as you saw, that I'd wondered, well, does the omission of the actual firing scenario from that list mean that that authority doesn't come into play? But it turns out, as you pointed out, no, no, that's how all these statutes are written. They just are all written in that sort of... Uh, not as descriptive as they should be way. So it seems pretty clear that that statute controls. And this is yet another example of just uh, taking advantage of the fact that there's, unless and until someone's in a position to litigate it, uh, a la Homeland Security, as we've seen in a few settings, um, if you're willing to just plow forward and if everyone in the building is willing to act as if Chris Miller rather than David Norquist is the acting SECDEF, then as a practical matter, that's your result. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. I just think that, like, I mean, we shouldn't let this go without comment, that this was the exact same argument about why Matthew Whitaker's appointment as acting attorney general was unlawful, because there was a similarly specific provision in the DOJ statute. Yeah, And I just think, like, you know, I, I don't know. I, 
it's not as offensive to me because Miller is not as offensive, but that doesn't mean that it's clearly a legal end run around the more specific DOD succession rules. Totally agreed. Like I actually, as I said earlier, I'm actually quite relieved that it's Chris Miller. I've I've a lot of confidence in in Chris Miller. Um, But that's not the important point. We're talking now about the principle. How is the law properly interpreted? And it doesn't matter who the people are that we're talking about when it's being applied in that way. Um, yeah, this yet another the, the the entire cluster of issues around appointments and the the uh, toothlessness, the, the impunity with which both the constitutional order, with its central emphasis on the checking function of the Senate in the selection and appointment in the appointment of those who've been selected as nominees, it's just been thrown in the trash, and people act like it doesn't matter, and it's. Just blows my mind. Yeah. Uh, the the founding fathers would have been aghast at this way of running things. Yep. Okay, we have true non-Trumplandia <laughs> topics. I want to draw attention to a case that's getting very little attention nationally. Although I think in New York, it's got a lot of attention. It's a prosecution in the Eastern District of New York. Uh, yesterday, a criminal complaint was unsealed against uh, Brian Mayoriana. Uh, who's a Staten Island resident charged under 18 U.S. Code Section 875? Um, that is the federal crime, a set of federal crimes involving threats. And since we're talking about speech type crimes, of course, there's a First Amendment issue, but the threat crimes fall into a category, uh, a First Amendment exceptions category known as the true threats category where under the right circumstances, the First Amendment will allow the criminalization of threats of harm, uh, at least when the circumstances are precise enough to make this different from what we separately think of as the First Amendment zone of advocacy versus incitement. What's the difference? The difference, as I understood it, was specificity of who it is that's being threatened here, or who's going to be the object of, of the harm. Um my understanding is that true threats cases need to be cases where there's a particular uh, person or organization that's being threatened, in this case, with with uh, murder, et cetera. By the way, so then if you look at what's claimed about this defendant, uh, it does look, at least according to the brief language of the complaint, it's a lot more like an advocacy incitement scenario, meaning that the true threats doctrine doesn't help overcome the First Amendment problems, and this might instead need to be looked at through the lens of uh, the incitement advocacy line. Why do I say that? Um, Because according to the complaint, what he did was he went online to various fora saying horrific, revolting things, saying, you know, we've got to bring the Turner Diaries to life. We've got to, you know, we've got to throw bombs at protesters. And this this is awful, awful stuff. Um, But it doesn't sound like from the description of the complaint that it's a it's particularized in its object as to the particular target. So threat seems an awkward fit for this. And if it doesn't end up getting cleaned up when they shift to indictment mode and or replaced with separate charges, there's a hint in the complaint that this might turn into a gun charge case, um, then I think they're going to have a First Amendment problem. Because if you instead examine this from a Brandenburg perspective. That's the Supreme Court's currently controlling opinion on the line between constitutionally protected advocacy that is vile and terrible, but nonetheless protected, and that which is prosecutable because it's crossed the line into inciting violence. Uh, It looks like a fact pattern one would sort of hypothesize to illustrate truly horrific advocacy of violence that hasn't quite reached the uh, constitutional thresholds of immediacy and likelihood of precipitating an effect as Brandenburg requires. So again, the case is Mayoriana. That's M-A-I-O-R-A-N-A. You can pull it off my Twitter feed if you're looking for the link to it. Um, I suspect par- partly what's going on here is simply the, the, the magic of a placeholding charge. They needed to arrest this guy. They're going to come in with more charges later, I suspect. Uh, but we'll see. Um, all right, that's all I have on that one. We need to check in with our friends at TikTok. TikTok. Mm. Last time we checked in, they'd been hit with both barrels, or ByteDance had been hit with both barrels. Barrel one, IEPA sanctions. Barrel two, CFIUS divestment order. 
The IEPA sanctions, as we've talked about before, um, have been gummed up in, I think, two, maybe three court orders now, all in uh, preliminarily enjoining them, um, either on First Amendment grounds or on grounds that the IEPA statute's exception for information materials might be applicable here. But nothing has stopped or stayed or enjoined the CFIUS divestment order, the deadline for which is tomorrow. By dance, supposed to sell off TikTok USA by tomorrow. They haven't done it. And TikTok showed up in court yesterday basically saying, is anyone, is anyone still here? Does anyone still care? We've been reaching out to the CFIUS process to ask for a 30-day extension, which I gather they are entitled to ask for under the currently pending order. And they just aren't even getting a response. Um, and it's kind of funny. It almost has this feel that the TikTok issue is, is last month's uh, narrative and that the, the Trump White House has sort of moved on to other things. And so who cares? Uh, who knows? Um, but they went into court to say, basically, look, we're about to hit this deadline. There's a problem. I wouldn't be surprised at all if even by the time this is recorded and on the air, um, a court has done a TRO to, to ensure they're going to at least get their 30-day extension. Um, but it raises the question, okay, but if 30 days go by and, and they don't uh, sell the company, what then? Uh, the way CFIUS works, as I understand it, is that a, a disobeyed divestment order, I don't know if you've ever had that, but Section 721 of the Defense Production Act, which is the sort of the original statutory home for CFIUS, uh, does contain a provision in subsection D that authorizes the Justice Department to go to court to get an order enforcing a divestment order. So I think that's how this sort of unfolds from there. Of course, by the time we get to that, uh, the Biden administration is in charge. Whether they still want to play the TikTok game, I don't know. I don't know that they're going to revoke this because I don't know that the Biden administration is going to feel that it has a lot of political running room to the left vis-a-vis -vis China issues since the right has tried very hard to sell the narrative, I think the false narrative, that Biden somehow is is soft on, on China issues. So he may feel like, yeah, this is dumb. I'd, I'd like to revoke it, but politically, it's, it'd be spending capital early in my administration when I don't want to. So we may yet see something come of this, but for right now, it just seems like no one's minding the store. Really remarkable. Uh, on the other hand, a cause for celebration for teenagers everywhere. And Fleetwood Mac, apparently, I would add. <laughs> uh, did you see that, by the way? Did you see that amazing TikTok of, of the did. guy? Yes. And, and, then, and, then, and then Mick Fleetwood, yeah. Yeah. Is there any better vibe? than that guy created in that video. <laughs> and the fact that it's got my teens totally listening to the Fleetwood Mac catalog is just cracks me up. It's awesome. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Speaking of frivolity, we could talk about Fleetwood Mac, but maybe we should talk about the Mets instead. The Mets are under new ownership. All right. So uh, the Mets, we can't, we can't get much to celebrate on the field. So like, uh, like Texas football recruiting, We'll uh, just focus on the uh, the things other than the games that portend supposedly future success. Steve Cohen brought uh, $2.5 billion to the table. Um, wow. This is a deep-pocketed owner who's saying all the right things about staying out of the way of the baseball people and just giving them the money and supporting them and making smart decisions and going out there and building a serious team. Are we about to see the Dodgersification of the Mets? Maybe. Who would you go? Who would you, who are you hoping they're gonna? I'm not. I'm not hearing enthusiasm, Steve. I feel like I'm being more enthusiastic about it than you. Is it I, I'm your, glad. Uh, the, listen, I mean, I mean, I guess I, I have a hard time caring about the Mets right now. Like, I just, ooh. you know, I'm excited that Will Ponds are gone. I'm excited that Steve Cohen's the owner. I think that probably augurs well for the future. But you know, I want to get to December eighth and some state certificate. I, I guess I just I I've been really thrown by all of this. You can't go to frivolity. You can't leave just, the serious I, stuff. I mean, I, I know there are people who who aren't living and dying with stuff, but like I've been walking around with like like Saturday and Sunday were the first days in a long time where I actually felt like, whew, we survived all of this nonsense, and then we're right back into well, maybe we didn't actually survive all this nonsense. I think we survived all this. We've got to go through, and in that, there was no way this guy was going out quietly, and we're having to pay the price for that now. I'm going to force you into frivolity mode. Okay, yes or no? Should they spend money on the following people? Okay. For catcher, JT Realmuto. Yes. George Springer for the outfield. No. Oh, is it is that an anti-Astros thing? No, it's, it's a, a, a 
it's a replacement level. It's the it's the replacement level player value. You know, Real Muto. I, it's hard to find replacement. Like you know, it's I don't know that the the bench is that deep. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's the new Piazza, I guess. Um, well, not not quite. Yeah. Trevor more Bauer. like the new Jason Kendall. Yeah. How about uh, Trevor Bauer? I would spend money on Trevor Bauer. Um, some think that DJ LeMahieu may be available. <sighs> I, I feel like I feel like you're buying you're buying high with LeMahieu right now. Uh, it does feel that way, absolutely. Uh, any other obvious uh, free agents that just, if you had the money, it'd be great to get them. Um, is Babe Ruth available? Uh, well, tech, strictly speaking, <laughs> won't do much for you, but yes. Not, <laughs> not currently committed to any contracts. We'll 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 sign we'll we'll sign his corpse to a contract. Exactly. Exactly. That's um, so. In the spirit of frivolity and in the random things we sometimes recommend, I'll recommend a book I've been reading with my youngest, uh, the Dead City Kids Book Trilogy, Zombies, or I should say, The Undead in New York City, but they they're stuck in Manhattan. They can't go out. There's all, it, I think you would enjoy it uh, one day when your girls are a little bit older. My uh, fifth graders enjoying it a lot. So Dead City, good trilogy so far. So I have to say, I mean, even though I have not done my job of catching up on The Mandalorian, um, I have, Karen and I have been watching The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. I keep have doing you, things. No, but it's it, on our it's, list it's, as a candidate. Do you? It's a lot of fun. Uh, I think, so we've basically got a role reversal here where I've been off watching goofy sci-fi on my own. Yeah. And, and and not watching stuff with my wife, uh, that's completely the opposite. And you, we've switched roles here. I don't understand. Well, I, th- I think the thing is, my the time in which I would normally watch TV by myself has been given to election related work um, oh, and brief writing of various ilks and sizes, shapes and sizes. Well, as, um, as, not, as a friend on Twitter said earlier, uh, you're doing sabbatical wrong. I, I really am doing sabbatical way you're wrong. Right, I can't tell. Nah, it's one or the other. Um, all right, I've got a class that's starting pretty soon, so I really speaking of <laughs> speaking of. All right, well, um, I, I will I will try again to watch The Mandalorian by the time we record next week. But uh, I'll just say this: just make sure you watch the first episode. There's a lot less to talk about. Episode two, I can give you your review of episode two already. Filler, unimaginative, unhelpful to the plot. Noted. All right. Well, that's a rousing endorsement. Yeah. Uh, all right. So he is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Hopefully by this time next week, the um, the 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 coup the, the the coup talk will have moved along to you know sort of petty transition busting talk. Coup de blah. Coup de blah. Um, that could ho- I, I hope that we I hope that next week's episode can be called Coup de blah. Um, all right. Just in case. Everybody, stay safe out there. Adios.